give humanity a seat at the table and don't just ask, will it work? Is it profitable? Is it right? But is it humane? That, it's really simple. Just bring some humanity into the boardroom, into the conference room, into your meeting, and into how you manage your people and how you interact with your people. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 12, and my guest today is Courtney Kirschbaum, and I caught up with her at the Georgia Society of CPAs Southeastern Accounting Show in Atlanta. Now, Courtney is a global career strategist and a keynote speaker, and she'll help you manage your talent and create a strategy for a more profitable career. As she writes on her website, are you on schedule, and where do you want to be in the arc of your career? Are you happily working at your potential? or feeling frustrated beneath it. If you're not where you want to be, does your employer care? Are they promoting and advancing when you're ready or at their convenience, usually long after you're ready? If you want the title recognition and salary that reflects your high performance and your potential, to put a plan and strategy in place to get the results you want on your timeline, to transition successfully from employee to entrepreneur, then contact Courtney by going to her website, CourtneyKirschbaum.com. Our conversation focuses on her opening keynote address in Atlanta, the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning, and I'll let the interview speak for itself. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to share an interesting blog that I found on Watershed Associates titled, Negotiation Lesson from Improv, Yes, And. Hmm, I wonder why I picked this one. In the article, the author discusses two main principles that improv teaches that will make you a better negotiator. Number one, be a better listener. And to do this, you have to be present and in the moment and drop your agenda and listen to what the other person is saying. If you're rehearsing what you want to say next while the other party is talking, you're going to miss out on some real important information. Number two, yes and. We use yes and to keep the conversation moving in a positive direction and to help keep our emotions in check. In the article, the author writes, actually saying yes in negotiations can have dreadful ramifications. So in negotiations, we want to be a bit more verbose. Try saying, yes, I see what you mean and... Or, yes, I'm beginning to understand, and, or, yes, you have some valid points, and, you get the idea. So go find this article and read it and become a better improviser during any type of negotiating situation. One more thing. Let me ask you a question. Are you tired of getting the deer in the headlights look when you're trying to explain an accounting or tax-related issue? 
then read my book, Taking the Numb Out of Numbers, explaining and presenting financial information with confidence and clarity, and let it be the guide in your transformation. When you take the numb out of numbers, that leaves you with errors, effective, relatable stories. And isn't that the goal of every financial presentation? Hayden Williams, who's the CFO at the Washington Society of CPAs, is quoted saying, a must-read for any financial professional. The book is now available on Amazon in paperback and in Kindle, so stop what you're doing and go buy it today. Now, without further ado, let's get to the interview with Courtney Kirschbaum. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm actually in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Georgia Society CPA Southeastern Conference. Big conference, I guess. Big, uh, yes. And one of the reasons why I came down is a friend of mine, Courtney Kirschbaum, was the opening keynote session for the, as they say, C, Southeastern Accounting Show um, conference. And she kicked it off this morning big time. And her topic was the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. So I've got Courtney here, and we're going to talk about her session this morning and how it relates to the accounting profession. So it's wonderful seeing you. I loved your session. I love taking photos of you for your your website. I heard the big round of applause, and I knew you did well. So welcome, Courtney. Thank you, Peter. It is great to be here with you. I was so happy when I found out we were both going to be here, and it's great to be at CES. This is a great conference. So what was the premise of the conversation that you had with your audience? And but folks, by the way, it was a big audience. I think there's like over 1,200 people here, and there had to be at least 1,000 in that room. It was a big room, a lot of folks, and the, I'll tell you how I got the idea for this talk. Every generation I've noticed, I'm old enough to notice this now, which is scary enough, but <laughs> do you notice how, you know, you've got this uncle or someone that you know that's, oh, the kids today, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That is the phrase. It's mm. like, we are in trouble. And when I was invited to give this talk, I started doing some research and I found this quote by Socrates. Okay. And the quote is, children today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders. They chatter in place of exercise, and they tyrannize their teachers and their parents. And when I saw that that was Socrates, I thought, okay, that was 2,000 years ago, and we're still saying this stuff? This isn't right. You know, so it just got me thinking, like, everybody thinks that their beginning and their end is like the ultimate beginning and end. Right. And there are so many, anybody who's been in business for even a short while knows that so much of what we see is just something old with a new name. Right. So that's how it started. That's how I got the idea. Wow. Um, and, and when I do talk to the audiences and, and we get on a conversation of the generations, I ask the baby boomers to raise their hand, and they do. I said, you're the ones that raised the millennials. Absolutely. So quit complaining about them. And no, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't us. It wasn't us. And then I asked the baby boomers this question. How many of you remember Vietnam? Because you had Vietnam in your story today. Yes. How many of you had long hair? How many of you smoked pot, dropped acid? What did you guys do? You remember? And your parents of the silent generation, that was the opposite of what they liked. And I get this really not me look. <laughs> it's not my fault how they turned out. Right. I think... There's almost a slingshot effect. Every generation gets the opportunity to observe their parents. And 
a lot of the complaints I heard about millennials, everybody's heard this. Oh, they don't want to work. I can't get them to come to work. And the reason, one of the reasons for this is that millennials saw their parents kind of give their entire lives over to work. And they saw their parents' marriages fail. And they saw the result of that. And they thought, well, what's so great about work if you give it everything you got and then you end up divorced and unhappy, or, you know, whatever. whatever. And that's just one slice of one slice of it. But I've always been a little bit more empathetic to that perspective. I think I must be an honorary millennial. I really must be, <laughs> because I, you know, I worked for many years in um, in the big, you know, big four firms, demanding job, and I kind of thought some of what they were saying made sense. Um, so I've always tried to kind of speak for the side of that up-and-coming generation. Because when you're young, you don't have any sense of perspective on your experience. When I think about, you know, what I thought about work and, and my job when I was in my 20s and 30s, um, I get it now, but now I've got, you know, some perspective on it. And I feel, and this is really corny, but I really feel like when you start, you you don't know a lot. And work is one place where you don't want anybody to know that you don't know anything. I mean, and that will stay with you until the day you retire. Um, You know, people are self-conscious about making mistakes. We have stigmatized mistakes in the workplace. So people come in, they don't know anything. You know, you're young in your career. And even if you know something, you've got a lot to learn. And it's hard. That's a hard, um, that's a hard continuum to traverse. So I've always thought, I know that I could have moved ahead faster if I'd gotten a little bit more support and a little less. These kids today are no good. Right. And I just I just think that's universally true. And I talk about, you know, those continuums. I talked about them today and I've just I've always had this natural inclination to think, you know, let's let's give them a chance. Let's see what they can do. Um because we're all pretending we know a little more than we know. I don't or like, have at one time or another. Exactly. And I don't like to use the M word. I, I honestly stay away from it too. I call it the younger generation. Yeah, that's great. Uh, they, they've got, they, but we've we've made that word evil when it's really not, and we've stereotyped a group that there's there's this millennial you might know, what, Mark Zuckerberger. Yeah, Facebook is he the Facebook guy? He's a exactly. millennial. Exactly. The millennials are you know in, in their thirties now, uh, and we all have different you know going in public accounting. Why would I want to be a partner in a firm when I see these partners killing themselves? Exactly. And working as many hours. And they, they, they're sitting trying to figure out why I have no succession plan. Well, you've got to redesign the firm to make it something that you'd want somebody to do. Exactly. I love millennials. I mean, I'll just say it straight up. I love millennials and I love what they've done for the workforce because they stand up for themselves and they stand up for their you know, that work-life balance. You know, I talked about Kiroshi in the talk today. Um, I worked in Japan in 2003. That's right. I worked in Japan in 2003, and I, I told the story in the talk today. Um, I would walk to work. I'd walk to the subway station and then go to work, and occasionally I would see somebody sleep in their car. Now, this is, I was in my 30s, and I thought, oh, they must have had too much sake and lost their apartment <laughs> keys. You know? <laughs> you know, what's the Japanese word for that? Yeah. Um, but years later, in 2015, I was um, back in the States, and I read an article in the Washington Post that said, the headline was, are the Japanese working themselves to death? And I had been there in 2003, and I'd seen how embedded they were in this work culture and how that it was so important to them not to bring shame upon themselves. This is fundamental to their culture, and where it shows up is at work. And the people that I had seen in their car sleeping and didn't know what they were doing, uh, didn't know why they were there, 
They were there because they had worked all night and were trying to get a few hours of sleep and then go back in and work again. So the article was about how Kiroshi, which means death by work, Wow. has taken hold in this in the last 13 years since I was there it's taking hold and thousands of Japanese are literally killing themselves the government has gotten involved and and I was there at the beginning of it and burnout is a real issue in our workplace mm-hmm. today now in Japan you can't leave a job as easily as you can in the states so how it's showing up in the states is it's showing up as churn as attrition somebody gets begins to feel burnout and they leave mm-hmm. and just like in Japan, that we aren't as intense as the Japanese in this way, people don't want to admit that they can't take on anymore, the workload's too much. You know, they want to honor their obligations to their boss, to their teams, to their companies. You know, I believe people really want to do a good job at work. And they're killing themselves in Japanese in Japan to do that. And it's going to come here. I think it might come more slowly. It might take a different form. But we are turning into a culture that is work-obsessed. The, the well, we've probably been there for a while. Forty the, the work week is 47 hours now. That's like the real average work right. week. And interesting statistic in from 2000 to 2014, the increase in productivity at work is 21.6%. The increase in remuneration is 1.8%. And you just can't continue to do that to right. people. You know, I'm a career strategist. I talk to a lot of people about their careers, and they say, you know, they give me more. I'm getting more work, but I'm not getting anything else. I'm not getting more recognition. I'm not getting more remuneration. I'm not getting more authority. And 15 years ago, when I was my generation's version of a millennial, I I wouldn't have known what to do with this information. I didn't. But I can put it together now because I have the benefit of that experience and when I first when I first put this together, I thought, you know, does anybody want to hear this? Because when you're in that work mode, it's like, you know, take one for the team, you know, pull an all nighter, do what you have to do. Um, but that's what put that's what put Japan in the place it is now, and that's what that's why they had this issue, you know, with Kiroshi. And the government has gotten involved, and it's talking to companies and saying, make you know, make your employees take their vacation and be sensitive to this and. Um, they have a real problem. It is not uncommon for people in their 30s in Japan to have a heart attack. Well, that's just not right. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, when I was at Victoria's Secret, we went to Japan and I got to witness this firsthand and we were there for a week. And what you described about the inefficient work style. Yeah, it's true. I mean, what time is it? Why do you want to know? I just want to know. What it, 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 they work 12 hours a day. At least. But this whole thing about saving face, mm-hmm. not making a mistake, it's real. And, and now we bring it to us. We still have that. We have that same thing when you're coming. You know, the, the, I call it the, the, that stage one competency. I don't know what I don't know, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to ask the question because I'm afraid to ask because everybody thinks I'm smarter than I probably am. And recently, I, someone gave me the acronym for the word FAIL. First attempt in learning. I love that. I, it, it, I love it too. And, and I use it more and more. And, and it's, it's good. It's okay to fail. It's okay to make a mistake because you're human. Yep. It's but when you make a mistake, come with a solution. And I don't know. If, I don't know if managers, partners, CFOs, controllers are teaching their people about it's okay to make a mistake, but figure out a solution before you bring it to me. I don't. You know. I think the dialogue at every company is different. I would like to point out that while they've given a word to death by work in Japan, mm-hmm. they do not have a word 
for work-life balance, which I thought was kind of scary and interesting. Yeah. Coincidence? I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, here, you know, at least we're talking about it. And I heard this other great term, which is work-life integration, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, you know, old thing, new name, just like <laughs> right, I said, right, old right. thing, new name. Um, but all of this, and this really is what the talk was about this morning, all of this pivots on one thing, and that's humanity. Businesses are driven by profit. They're driven by success. They're driven by the Japanese not wanting to bring shame on themselves. And over here, it's just another version of a, I don't want to lose face. Right. And we, you know, we abandon our humanity and we, we, we're working people to the point where they can't take it anymore and they leave. And I think when we, you know, make millennial a pejorative term, we're kind of doing the same thing. You know, we're not, we're not being compassionate. And that is not cool to say in the office. In the office, it's buck up. You got to be tough. You know, in my generation, it's this old, I walked uphill to school in the snow both ways. Right. And people need to be called out on it because it doesn't serve the people who are at that, you know, in the beginning end of those transitions. Like these universal continuums are from curious to in the know, from alone to connected, and from insecure to empowered. So this is you in the first grade, not knowing anything or anybody and feeling insecure. And then you work and you get to know the system and you go from you go from curious to in the know and you go from alone to having friends and connections mm-hmm. and a network and being empowered. And that makes you feel, you know, less insecure and more empowered. And that's what we all go through continually in our lives. And it's tough at work, right? Again, because we've really stigmatized mistakes at at school, it's kind of objective. You're here to make mistakes, to learn. But right, by the right. time you get to work, okay, we need you to be perfect now. Yeah. So mistakes are stigmatized. And if we invite people into the workforce, or people come into our workforce, they arrive at the threshold of your firm or your company, and they're not supported through that, that transition, you know, no, nobody wins. And we are all constantly making that transition, you know, from one end of those continuums to the other. So it really behooves us all. It's like, let's let's all cut each other some slack and let's add a little humanity to the equation. And that's really what the talk was kind of saying. Like, mm-hmm. if you look at all the situations, all the changes that are going, you know, all the beginnings and endings, um, speak up for humanity. You know, speak up and say, yeah, this is right and it's profitable yeah. and we'll get the result we want. Um but it's just the humane thing to do because that's really what I saw in absence of um, when I was working in that environment. And I was too inexperienced and too unknowing really to say, to speak up. Right. I thought it and I talk about it with my colleagues, but it's really the responsibility of people to kind of say, this actually is not uh, the direction we should be going in. This isn't right. This isn't humane. It's funny you should say that because— uh over the last six months, there's a theme that's been rolling through Harvard Business Review articles, and that theme is human leadership. That theme is empathy. Absolutely. That theme is being present. Oh, wait, I'm talking improv again. But it, but in essence— You got it. And it is. It's, it's about, you know, we, we, we might be an asset to a firm, but we're people. Because we're in the people business. And the more that we can engage our people, the more our business will grow versus the more we try to control them, it's not going to grow. And But I think this has always been the case. But maybe it's this younger generation that's finally making us realize, you know, there's another side to this. I'm a person. I'm a human being. You know, I, I've got a family. I'm growing up. And I— yes. Don't know what I don't know. That's that, that's when you graduate from college and you start your you know, accounting career and you go, I know how to audit. 
No, you don't. <laughs> you know how to sit for the CPA exam. I can do taxes. No, you don't. You're ready for the CPA exam. But like you, you said, you don't know what you don't know. No, but, they, we, but we got to get them to that phase of asking questions, learning to, to fail so they can, I don't know, but I want to learn. And I think people get to that phase faster. Just as you said, you create that environment where um, you say, ask, we don't expect you to know everything. Um, and I saw that, you know, I've been out of the corporate world for about six years now. And I will say, I did see that mm-hmm. right before I left. Like, it's okay to ask. You don't have, we don't expect you to know everything. So I think, I think there's some of it mm-hmm. um, emerging. And, you know, I just want to give it a voice because um, if, you, if you put up with things that you know aren't working and you participate in them just because you think it's the right thing to do um, and you're afraid to question um, not just, you know, ask questions about, hey, what you don't know with respect to an mm-hmm. audit or a tax form, but, you know, are we really doing the right thing here? You know, that needs to be heard because this new generation is bringing in, you know, some new ideas. They're the most well-educated group, you know, to enter the workforce. They started interning and taking advanced classes sooner. Now, this, if you, I'm speaking about Gen Z, so they were, they are turning 22 this year. They're entering the workforce these are kids who have been going to summer school to get college credit, have been doing free, you know, unpaid internships. Mm-hmm. So by the time they get, you know, are trying to get into college or are trying to get a job, I mean, they've been doing internships, some of them since high school. Um, they're not slackers. No, they, they felt pressure and worked to deliver from a younger age than any previous generation. Yeah, my son's in the Gen Z, 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 Z generation. It <laughs> uh, seems like he snoozes all the time. But, 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 but to that fact, they're, they're yeah, you said you said internship. Mm-hmm. So, I look at the internship programs right now. Come and while you're in college, to be a waste of their time, especially the way technology is changing, where they're not going to have to do the number crunching per se. We're going to have right. artificial intelligence, blockchain to do that, but they're going to need to have, know how to communicate and interact with people. Absolutely. My son is, was a thumbs only kind of guy. <laughs> I got it. Yep. And then he turned they're 16, and then he got a job in a restaurant as a busboy. It's been there two years. The kid can hold a conversation. We saw this transfer almost automatically. And That's if great. this is what we need our workforce to be like, the Gen Z, to be able to communicate, don't put them in an accounting firm. Make them go to work in a restaurant. Make them go to work in food service or retail where they got to deal with the public. There's the benefit. I completely agree. And I think that Gen Z is actually will welcome that. I think they'll really welcome it. There's a perfect example of the human touch versus this artificial intelligence. Because everybody is talking about artificial intelligence, blockchain. Oh, my God, is it going to take my job? It's a great example. So we're here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where Chick-fil-A was founded. Yes. Okay. Love so Chick-fil-A. Oh, me love too. love the Chick-fil-A. Oh, I've been talking about Chick-fil-A all day. So this is the really interesting thing that Chick-fil-A has done. Chick-fil-A, if you've, and you know this if you are a Chick-fil-A fan and you have been to their drive through has put people out in their parking lots. And you don't talk to a box and a speaker. You talk to someone who says, hey, how's your day going? And they smile at you and they say, thank you. And they show human warmth. You have a human connection. They put your order uh, on a tablet. Now, here's what's interesting. Chick-fil-A 
the revenue of their restaurants is $4.4 million. That's the average. Their closest chicken competitor is KFC, Mm -hmm. right? $1.1 million. Mm. Now, at the average fast food restaurant, 60 to 70% of their revenue comes from the Mm drive-thru. You go to a Mm drive-thru because you want fast service, right? right? That's that's what you think. But Chick-fil-A, while they get great ratings on accuracy of their orders and the human experience that people are polite, they are 30 seconds slower than the average, than the average fast food restaurant, but they're still blowing their competition away Mm -hmm. because people value that human experience. And I think we're going to see more of this because Mm -hmm. at the exact same time, McDonald's, if you've been into McDonald's recently, I know this makes me sound like all I do is eat fast food, but I swear (laughs) I don't. You go into McDonald's and there's a kiosk. So they've removed the human element. McDonald's restaurants, and of course, we're comparing apples to oranges a little bit. McDonald's restaurants, their average revenue in a year is uh, $2.5 million. So everybody's like, oh, we have to automate. And the more Mm. we automate, the more money we'll make. But Chick-fil-A pulled back and said, no, let's, part of their value system is to have a positive influence on everyone that comes into their store. Wow. What a concept. It's I mean, a, it's really... It's a novel concept that was in vogue in the 70s really, and 80s. Really and, and I think flashback as it relates to that needs to happen. Yeah. And actually, I was in Greenville, South Carolina last week, and they brought, you know, Chick-fil-A, they brought it in for, for the meal at, at the company I was with, and they told me the exact same story. Really? Been, in, in Columbus, Ohio, there's one Chick-fil-A, and I'm not usually on that side of town, so I haven't been there in a while. And I said, when I'm over there, there's always a line. They, were, they got people down. I go, What? You mean I'm not here? <laughs> no, there's a person that's taking your order and moving you through the system yep. versus you know, they get it. They and get and, it. and uh, in that, that podcast I was telling you about, uh, Building a Story Brand with uh, Don Miller, he interviewed the CEO of Chick-fil-A. And they came, he came out with a book two years ago. I think it's called Relevance. Yeah. And you get a chance it's, a, it's an excellent interview but that culture there will survive yes it will how do you translate that culture into our profession so here's some <laughs> of the things they did to do that and it goes deep it's not just superficial it's not just training people the first thing is it cost by comparison if you want to open a mcdonald's franchise you have to ante up seven hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. that's a serious barrier right you want to open up a Chick-fil-A franchise, the buy-in is $10,000, and they pay the physical building startup costs. $10,000. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's, that's nothing. It's certainly nothing compared to $750,000, which means they're lowering barriers mm-hmm. because their real criteria is, does this person embody the values, and will they run this operation embodying the values of Chick-fil-A? So right out of the gate, mm-hmm. they've said values over money. Right. It's interesting because we talked about this in Greenville, and it's, you only get one store. You can only have one, one store. store, absolutely. And you're an owner-operator. Absolutely. You can't just disappear. You right. have to have a relationship, right. not only with your team, but you have to have a relationship. They expect you to have a relationship with other store owners. And in fact, that's how the in-person order-taking, which mm-hmm. has become so, you know, what you see at all Chick-fil-A's now, that started in Houston. And one store owner had the idea, and of course, they're not competing, but right. they're collaborating. So now it's spread to other stores, and it's become one of their hallmarks. Hmm. So they lowered the barriers, and hmm. they said, 
let's not infight. Let's not compete. Let's be involved in our stores, which means it's a it's like a small community business. It's mm-hmm. like a small business and small communities, and they engage. The owner is in the store, and they're talking to people at other stores. And sometimes they'll even like do cooperative um, promotions with other store owners. But instead of worrying like the person down the you know the person in the next town is your competition, it's what can I give them and what can they give me. It's a more collaborative approach. So in an accounting profession, whether you're in public accounting or, or in BNI or whatever, how can we be more collaborative? How can we get the, more of the best practices? We're, we're in competition, but it should be a friendly competition. You know who you should ask? Who? The people who are coming into your firms, the, your youngest, your newest hires. Now, they won't always be right, mm-hmm. but they'll tell you what they need. Yeah. And if you think about it, the ones who are most going to benefit from collaboration are the people who come in and don't know that much. Right? When right. I think about when I started as a project manager and I didn't know anything, and there are people who will attest to this, what would have helped me more than anything is not carrot and stick, but real <laughs> collaboration. Yeah. And I lived in fear of getting it wrong, which I often did, and I figured it out. But I would have given anything to be asked rather than had assumptions made about what was the best way to get this information to me. Invariably, if you are a leader or a mm. manager or, and, you're, and you've got people working on your teams, I think that's the first step. doesn't mean you have to do everything they suggest, but it'll really open your eyes. And they really do have the most to benefit, I think. Certainly can accelerate their learning a lot if you have collaboration. The, I've said this many times before. The collective knowledge outside your office far exceeds the collective knowledge inside your office. That's great. It's a great thing. So, you know, just because they're new doesn't mean that they don't know they don't know everything. We've already established that. Yeah. But but they know stuff that you don't know. So there's the collaborative aspect. And someone told me if you if you want to know what people are thinking, go on Twitter and follow the people that they follow. Yeah. That gives you an idea into the into their insight and what what they're seeing. It's a great idea. So Basically, you're telling a firm to be more collaborative or a a, a CFO or a finance department going through the collaboration aspect of it and and dropping barriers, dropping barriers to work, getting rid of the negativity and be more empathy and and embracing. Imagine that. So I want to know, when you were kind of laying this out for this audience, Mm -hmm. did, did you get the stink eye at times? I will be honest with you. When I started writing this talk... I, when I talked with Jen here at the, the, the Georgia Society of CPAs, uh, and she's been a guest on your podcast, yes. Jen Oska. Yep. I talked with her and she said, you know, show them what the future, we want, we want you to show them what the future is going to look like. And I've been to a lot of conferences. We've all been to a lot right. of conferences. And I knew that I could talk about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and robots and, but I just wanted to go a little bit deeper. And I, I have to admit, I was a little self-conscious. I thought, you know, if I start talking about Kiroshi and if I start talking mm-hmm. about, you know, not um, taking a different approach with people who are coming into our firms and pointing out that for 2,000 years, we've been picking on the younger generation and we might want to stop. Right, right, um, right, right, right. You know, is this is this going to fly? But a lot of people have come up to me since I gave the talk mm-hmm. and, and thanked me for bringing it up because I know from my own experience that this is what you talk about when your boss leaves, you know, <laughs> and you're young. So you, you think, well, this, this is how the older, more experienced people are doing it. So it must be right. So 
I was concerned, but I thought, you know, I don't care. I really don't care, and here's why. The last thing that I talked about in today's talk was this Japanese, um, you know, the strong part of the Japanese culture, which is not to bring shame on yourself mm -hmm. and to protect your honor. And I really thought, you know, I'm honor-bound to talk about this. You know, if they're going to give me the stage and say, you know, share your point of view, then you have to be honest about it. And you can't, you know, curtail what you say because some people are still, you know, embracing that, you know, I walked to school uphill both ways in the, you know, in a rainstorm or in the snow. And that's, that doesn't serve anybody. So that's, that's why I kind of held to it. Mm -hmm. And I really did, I often felt like people who are really wanting to do right and do good and deliver good work and work environments were treated and this is a strong word, but they were treated inhumanely because we're in a system. Mm -hmm. You know, it's bureaucracy. And I saw that a lot. And I'm on stage talking about, you know, death by mm. work and Kiroshi. And these are heavy topics, but they deserve attention. Right. They really deserve attention. So that's why. And I, you know, you, when you're as a speaker, you scan the crowd. And people don't always give up what they're saying, and especially at a professional, <laughs> what they're thinking. At a professional, at a professional conference, you know, your boss can be sitting next to you. Yeah. I can't tell you. I mean, I was at a conference a few weeks ago. Somebody handed me a note and said, "My boss is in the room, so I can't ask this question." This is what the note said, but I need to talk to you. So there's that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just kind of thought, you know what, this needs to be said, mm -hmm. and I can tell by the response that it got today um, that. People are glad it was said. Um, you know, that, if you think about that statistic of productivity increasing mm -hmm. almost 22% and compensation increasing 2%, mm -hmm. you know, people feel this. This is showing up in people's everyday lives. And we need to get a, I really do feel like we need to acknowledge this. Mm -hmm. I said in the talk today, I said, if our workforce was a state, it would be California <laughs> on fire. <laughs> I mean, right? And it's, but it's true, and nobody wants to say, I can't take any more work. Oh, my God. It's, <laughs> it's true. It's true. So as you're describing this, yeah, makes me think of a firm I've done some work with, and actually I've included them in my book. And it's a firm in Maryland called Delion and Stang. Okay. Now, the two partners who started this didn't grow up in public accounting, and that was the key because— They've been around for, I think, 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And they just went through, a, at the beginning of the year, they went through kind of a rebranding. Their the, the mission statement always put clients before people. Right. They redid that, now it's the people before clients. If we treat our people well, it's almost a Richard Branch thing. I don't worry about my clients. I worry about my people. If I get the right people, treat them right, they'll take care of my, of my customers, my clients. They will. So they also rolled out two new policy changes. During busy season, there were no mandatory Saturdays and Sundays. Nice. <laughs> exactly. But it gets better. They also rolled out unlimited PTO time. Yes. And I said, the light bulb went off in my head. I said, wow, a firm, an organization that trusts their people. And that's what I kind of boiled it down to. There's a lack of trust. And that's why we've got yeah. 2%. That's why we're, 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 but when you trust your people, and, and research has shown they won't take the whole unlimited PTO. They end up probably taking less than they did before. That's what studies, that studies of this are showing, that they end up taking less than before sometimes. But you're empowering them. Yes, you are. And that, I think there's going to be an adjustment period for that. 
Like, how do we how do we behave with this new freedom? And I, I honestly think that's normal. I agree. It's worth tracking. It's and they and and they're tracking. Um, last conversation I had. I mean, they're they were a little nervous. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, but uh, they're seeing the they're seeing the benefits. And you know, I interviewed them for this podcast that aired about about a couple months ago, and they talked about this whole culture, what they did, and they were afraid of it. But they're they're they're, they're seeing the benefits of it. Yeah. Attrition will go down, and that's key because if. I don't have my people. I have nobody working. And if I'm beating them up and they're leaving, or if I'm not investing into them. Exactly. Well, what if I train them and they leave? What no, if, if what if I don't train them? Uh, no, what if I train them and they leave? And you go, well, if you don't train them, what happens if they stay? They stay. Yeah. And it's, I think it boils down to the way we trust people. Yeah. It's kind of a fearlessness. Because these things, you know, a lot of these things aren't new. Yeah. It's just, do you have the guts to do it? Right. Or are you managing from a position of faith and intuition? Right. Like trusting yourself. Because that's the that's the person you have to trust first to say, because evidence that this works is so, it's everywhere. It's abundant. Right. But do you have the guts to do it? Because that's, I really think it takes guts. Because it doesn't take any guts to leave from fear. Right. And I think there's a lot of fear-based leadership. Yes, and yeah. I will clearly, yes, but I, I've been part of some fear-based leadership, and, and, and I witnessed fear-based leadership, yeah. and nothing good comes from fear-based. And it's hard on people, it really right. is. And it's even hard on those leaders, because they have to live in that environment, right. too. It's it's not, yeah, it's not easy. I call that ego leadership. Yeah, that's a great way to put yeah, it. it. Yeah, and that doesn't work, especially in today's workforce. It's got to be more of a collaborative. It's got to be more of an empowering and embracing. You'll get bigger rewards at, a, at, a, at not as much of investment as you do with ego leadership and people leaving and having to continually reinvest. Well, the baby boomers are leaving the workforce, and I think this is through— I mean, this is this is going to go on for several more years at a rate of ten thousand a day. Yeah, I've they heard are that. rolling out the door right. now. Some are staying; they can't afford to retire for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Some are staying longer, but you know, the, the millennials are going to take the helm, and then you know, the generation behind them, and that's a whole new ball game. There's a lot of change between Gen X and the millennials, and then now the Gen Z. There's a, there was a Big, big change. Mm-hmm. Not the typical kind of we're, we're learning and changing at the same right. pace. There's a big jump. And I think we're going to start seeing once the boomers are gone, um, I think more and more it's going to it's gonna show up. Like what, is, what has been the real impact of this? Hey, easy on the boomers being gone now. I'm <laughs> one of them, even though as some people describe, I'm a, I'm a cusper. Don't you know, go anywhere. Don't I had, go anywhere. I, I had a, a, you know, when I, so I'm a baby boomer, but in my time I had a bottle in my mouth, not a marijuana cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> marijuana cigarette. Yeah, that's what you say now. Yeah, yeah. That's what you say now. Yeah, but uh, um, so, and, and parting words. Yeah. What would you tell my audience to begin to do today? Give humanity a seat at the table. Don't see something that you know is stupid. And that's the word, this is stupid. Why are they making us do this? You know, think about the numbers that you've heard today. And, and I'll give you just one or two more to close with. 23% of the workforce, this is a recent Gallup poll, says they feel burnout all or most of the time. Doctors' offices are overwhelmed with people coming in with these nonspecific ailments. That's stress. Yeah. HR professionals, as many as 50% think a large amount of 
the attrition and turnover is from people who are burnout. And we see this. This isn't a secret. This right. is just something we're not talking about. Right. Give humanity a seat at the table and don't just ask, will it work? Is it profitable? Is it right? But is it humane? That, it's really simple. Just bring some humanity into the boardroom, into the conference room, into your meeting, and into how you manage your people and how you interact with your people. Man, what a way to end. Give humanity a seat at the table. And that will be the title for this podcast episode. Okay, I love it. Uh, and I, I, I love it when our past cross has been way too long. We, it has we, been. We've done a couple interviews via Zoom. It's great seeing you. Did a wonderful job today. Uh, I, I wish you all the best. I look forward to our past crossing again soon. I do too. Thank you, Peter. I love collaborating with you. I want to thank Courtney once again for taking her time with me in Atlanta to sit down and share her keynote with this audience. In episode 13, my guests are Kristen Rampey, founder of Slide Deck Improv, Jason Hugh, who is one of her improv instructors and one of her other improv instructors who will remain secret for now. But by the way, all three of them are also CPAs. Thank you for listening. And begin the process of changing your mindset and getting out of your comfort zone and developing new skill sets to become more future ready. Your call to action is to read the article that I discussed earlier and apply those principles when you're in any type of negotiation. Remember, a part of being future ready is being an improviser. Being an improviser is someone who is willing to take risks in order to grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.